Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Jean Mizutani from Include, and we hope today's topic will challenge the widespread assumption that all people with developmental disability require guardianship when they reach age 18. Today's guest is Kristen Booth Glenn, and she is uniquely qualified to answer this question. Chris served as surrogate judge of New York County, where she had jurisdiction over guardianships of persons with intellectual disability and wrote several groundbreaking decisions in that area. She has written and lectured widely on the human right of legal capacity and supported decision making. She serves on the advisory boards for the Center for Public Representation, Nonotuck Supported Decision Making Pilot Project, the New York State Bar Association Disability Rights Committee, and is a former commissioner on the American Bar Association Commission on Disability Rights. Upon retiring from the bench in 2012, she became university professor and dean emerita at CUNY School of Law. She also represents a project called Supported Decision-Making New York, which promotes supported decision-making as an alternative to guardianship for persons with developmental disability. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Jean. I'm so happy you could join us today, and I'm so happy you can tackle a topic like this because this topic will help us expand our thinking about what the next step into adulthood could look like. In the past, so many parents assumed that obtaining legal guardianship over their adult child with a disability was the right thing to do. In fact, I venture to say that many thought there wasn't even a choice. What is guardianship? Well, guardianship is the legal process by which the court takes away from a person with developmental disabilities all of his or her legal rights and places the power to make decisions for that person in the hands of another person who is called the guardian. Um, Guardianship for people with developmental disabilities is under a special statute in New York It's called Surrogate's Court Procedure Act 17A, or Article 17A. And I think it's important to note that um, unlike adult guardianship, there is no way to tailor these guardianships. There's no way to limit them to, let's say, financial decisions or healthcare decisions. It's an all or nothing situation. And if a guardianship is awarded, it means that the person for uh, under guardianship has lost all of their rights to make all of their decisions, where to live, who to live with, their health, their money, who their friends can be, whether they can work or not, whether they can marry or not, etc. I'm sure many parents have not confronted that fact or fully absorbed that because when you say it like that, it's really startling. Yeah, I mean, our experience has been that many, many parents who have gotten guardianship really had no idea what, what they were getting and what they were giving up for their young adult children. Mm. So your project is called Supported Decision Making. Um, why is it so important for people with, develop- with disabilities and the people in their lives? Well, Supported Decision Making is an alternative to guardianship that allows the person with developmental disabilities, who I, I want to say right now we call the decision maker, to <laughs> retain all of his or her legal rights and to make decisions with the support of other trusted people. So it doesn't involve the, uh, the loss of rights that happens under guardianship, but it does recognize that support um, is necessary and provides for a kind of structure through which that support can be provided. 
Right. Now, I love the way you call the person with the developmental disability the decision maker. So let me ask you this. Is it safe? Well, I mean, I think, yes, it is safe um, for a number of reasons. One, because the more self-determined a person is, the more decisions they make and are taught to make, the more likely they are to make good decisions. Um, if there is a possibility of abuse or exploitation, the more likely they are to recognize that or to be able to report it. But I think even more important than that is um, the question of why do we think guardianship is protection. It, it isn't necessarily. And when you think about what the conditions are that would encourage abuse and exploitation, mm -hmm. isolation is number one. A guardian, and I'm, I'm obviously not saying that parents who are guardians are going to do this, but certainly historically many guardians and professional guardians have. If a guardian isolates a person, then they're really at, that, at the guardian's mercy. If a person is part of a supported decision-making network and has several supporters who meet and who watch out for the person and so forth, even if one of them is trying to exploit or abuse um, the others. So for me, the number of eyes that are out there at any given moment the more self-determined a person is, the more included they are in the community, the safer they are. That's a good reason for sure. And, you know, the more the parent loves the, their child or young adult, the more they realize they're not going to be here forever. And I like the idea the way you said, the more eyes, the safer. So this is something that they can set up during their lives and have everything ready to roll safely once they're gone. Absolutely. It, I think it's really important for parents to do that. And when you think about a supported decision-making process that a person with developmental disabilities will use throughout their lives, you also want to think about multi-generational supporters and the fact that supporters can change over time. So, for example, we have uh, someone who's working with us right now who has a, who has a parent um, siblings and some younger cousins right. as his or her chosen supporters. So if and when any of those people are unable to support any longer, somebody else can move in, but there'll be a sort of chain of, of familiarity. And obviously, as a person grows, uh, there's the circle from which they might want to choose supporters. They might have a job, and there might be some a trusted person in their employment situation, and so forth. So it's very flexible. Um, and it really does, I think, provide a, a real safety net and something that should reassure parents that when they're no longer available um, to be there for their child, that, that the child will be okay. I mean, if, if you become a guardian um, of your child when he or she turns 18, and you make decisions for him or her for the next 30 right. years, right. Um, and then suddenly you can't, that person is really not suited to be out in the world on his or her own and may very well end up being institutionalized, which is something I assume that most parents don't want for their kids. Right, that's for sure. What other ways do guardianship and supported decision-making differ? Well, I think they differ philosophically, but they also differ in terms of dignity. Um, I, I've met a number of parents, and, and in terms of adult guardianship as well, guardians who have said, oh, I always consult <clears throat> the person who is actually in the law called the ward, as opposed to the decision maker. Um, <laughs> I always consult the person, and you know, what, I try to do what, they, you know, what he or she wants. But the truth is that there is a certain dignity to being recognized as the decision maker. So if you go to the doctor, and the doctor only talks to the guardian, you feel like a non-person if you go to the bank and the banker only talks to the 
guardian, even though you and the guardian may have had a discussion about what should happen, you're just invisible. And I think that that, that dignity interest is a really important one. It's, it's one that comes out of human rights, not so much out of our notion of constitutional rights. But when you think about people's lived experience in the world, it really is very much about being a recognized person in the world. Yeah, it really is eye-opening, actually. It's really pretty amazing. Um, tell us more about the historical context. Well, uh, it's interesting, I think, to put this in historical context, because um, in the early part of this century, and really until about the 1960s, parents were told, or many parents were told, um, that the way to protect their children was to put them in institutions, which of course were then called schools, as if that somehow mm, made them right. okay. And, mm. and they actually started out as schools in the end of the 19th century, but by sort of the 1920s they were institutions. And, and parents did that believing that that was the way to protect their children. Um, in the 60s we began to have the exposés about what was going on in those institutions, Willowbrook and so forth, and Parents suddenly, with their children out of the institutions, thought, well, how do I protect my child now? Um, and they, pr primarily through uh, NYSARC, um, went to the legislature and said, we want to have the same legal right to control and make decisions for our children after they're 18 that all parents have for all children before they're 18. And so the guardianship law that we operate under now was actually passed in 1969, and it's basically unchanged since then. Um, but I have, a, I have a personal story about this. I was born in 1942 and my mother's best friend had a daughter two weeks after I was born um, and she had Down syndrome. Her name was Susie and Susie and I were friends um, until we were 10 or 11. She'd come to my house and play, I'd play at her house. You know, she was part of my gang. And then when she turned 12, her mom, my Aunt Betty, was told um, you've got to put her in an institution because she'll be vulnerable, she'll be exploited, she'll, predators will, will uh, exploit her sexually, and you can't protect her. The only way that she can be protected is in an institution. And my Aunt Betty loved her, and that's what she thought was the best thing for her. She oh. put her in Letchworth Village. Oh. I never saw Susie again because the folks at Letchworth said that visits were too disruptive, oh, and she gosh. died at 19. Oh, so, I, so I think it's just an example of how you do what you're told, and if it's the only alternative, you want to believe that it's true. Now we have a very different alternative, and that is supported decision-making. So I think we've moved from institutionalization to guardianship, and now hopefully from guardianship to supported decision-making. I'm very glad you're getting the word out, because I know that even a parent um, considering this and trying to open their mind and expand the possibilities that they see before them, they might be alone in that. Other family members may not have heard, professionals, doctors, teachers may not have heard. I mean, the broader the word is spread, the better, because you wouldn't want to be the parent trying to defend this. It sounds so wonderful, but I could well see a parent being alone trying to convince others that this is the safer, the better, the more human way. So thank you for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It really is. So it appears that the consensus is moving toward supported decision-making. Why is that happening? Is it a coincidence? Because everyone involved in education understands the concept of least restrictive environment. And we see it with the developmental disability community in terms of long-term planning. Well, when you think about the changes that have happened since 1969, 
when the statute was enacted. I mean, we have the ADA, we have a shift in the notion of developmental disability from a medical model to a social model and the need for society to create um, the possibilities and accommodations to allow people with all kinds of disabilities to live inclusive lives. Um, we have the IDEA, we have the notion of transition planning, person-centered planning, of consumer-directed services. All of these are really about self-determination. And guardianship is quite the opposite of self-determination, so that tension is very clear and supported decision-making is really sort of the next step in terms of person-centered planning. That happens not only in the agency or with regard to services, but in all the kinds of decisions a person would make throughout his or her life. Mm -hmm. How did you become interested in this issue? Well, it's funny because I actually started out um, dealing with adult guardianship in 1986 when I was a Supreme Court judge and I was hearing cases under what were then Articles 77 and 78 of the uh, mental hygiene law. There was a nationwide uh, reform movement for adult guardianship in the late 80s, sparked by a series of exposés, again, this time by the AP. Interesting how the press, you know, <laughs> really brings attention to these issues. Um, and, I was, and I was very involved in actually writing Article 81, which is the adult guardianship statute, which for its time, I think, was a, a very good statute with a lot of procedural protections and at least a theory that guardianships would be tailored to the least restrictive means. And then I left the bench and I went off to be dean of CUNY Law School and when I finished that um, and came back as surrogate, I suddenly found myself with the other guardianship statute, 17A, which I've already mentioned. Um, and I was shocked because it had even less procedural protections than, than, than the statutes we'd gotten rid of for adults in the, uh, in the early 90s. Um, and I started thinking about what, what are we going to do about this. At the same time, I was conducting hearings and looking at um, young people and not so young people for whom I thought guardianship was really inappropriate um, but the standard of the statute is just is there a developmental disability and is it in the person's best interests and inevitably the parents or the siblings or whoever had brought the petition would argue strongly that it was best interest and that there was no alternative. Um, so I sort of struggled with that and then I became acquainted with the human rights uh, lens on all of this, which talks about the human right of legal capacity, which is the right to make one's own choices, um, and the International Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which has not been ratified by the U.S. It was actually signed by the Obama administration. The U.S. doesn't ratify human rights treaties, but it has been ratified <laughs> by 174 countries around the world. And it says not only does everyone have a right to make his or own choices, but that uh, states' parties or the countries that sign these conventions have an obligation to provide whatever supports are necessary to enable people to exercise that right. And that's where supported decision-making comes from. It comes from what we all understand. None of us make decisions by ourselves. I mean, I wouldn't buy a car without calling my brother, who is the car maven, and reading consumer reports, and talking to my friends who say Subarus are the best, and <laughs> on and on and on. I wouldn't rent an apartment. I wouldn't take a job without other people helping me make that decision. And it's the same thing for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, except that they may require more or different kinds of support. So it's really just a question about what supports a person needs, not 
uh, can they make decisions, but what supports do they need to enable them to make decisions? It's really interesting. So it was your exposure to these cases from the bench that put you in touch with this? Yes, absolutely. Both, both times. Both for the adult guardianship and then for and then for guardianship of people with IDD. Right. That that is amazing. So where is this program available? Um, well, supported decision making is currently being piloted in New York under a five-year grant from the New York State Developmental Disabilities and Planning mm -hmm. Council. We're in our second year. We are located at uh, Hunter College School of Social Work. But SDMNY, which is the mm -hmm. umbrella, is actually a partner between Hunter CUNY, uh, NYSACRA, uh, which is the New York State um, Association of Community and Residential Providers, it's agencies, um, the Arc of Westchester, and Disability Rights New York. So we're in East Harlem at the Silverman School of Social Work. Oh. Um, we currently are working with people in the greater metropolitan area four of the five counties in New York, uh, Westchester, and we are expanding out into uh, Nassau and Suffolk quite soon. But the plan is that in year three, we'll be moving upstate at three to five sites that NYSACRA will help us find uh, so that we'll have coverage around, around the state. Hmm. And the purpose of this is really to kind of test out the model. Um, we're a pilot program, so I say all the time, making mistakes is good. Uh, because we learn from our mistakes. And uh, by now we have a pretty well-developed model that seems to be working quite well. And, and as we roll it out, we will be able to utilize it for more and more people. I'd say also that, um, one, I mean, you can ask me more about SDMNY, but um, one real issue for us and for the DDPC is sustainability. Obviously, the team that is together doing this project right now is not going to be able to um, handle the 1,700 uh, people a year who come under guardianship under 17A. Um, so we're looking at all kinds of innovative models about who we can recruit as facilitators, how we could train them, um, whether Medicaid money could be used for this, and if not, and if there is no Medicaid under the current administration, um, how we can do this. So, so we're in a beginning stage um, but we hope to really expand and to figure out how to do it statewide by the end of our project. Just the fact that people are thinking about it, I mean, that's an important step. That's an amazing step to even know it's out there. Well, I mean, it's out there all over the world. Um, many, many countries that ratified the convention are really taking it seriously and are, are completely changing their guardianship laws. There are pilot programs all over the world. We know of most of them. I've visited a number of them. Um, there was a smaller pilot earlier, in, which is actually still going on in Massachusetts and Northampton. Um, and we have two states in this country that have actually passed supported decision-making laws, which oh. is pretty amazing to me, um, oh. early on in the game as this is, Texas and Delaware. And there are currently, yeah, you can't think of two places that are more <laughs> unlikely, right? Um, and there are seven more states that are actively looking. And so it's really something that's happening. The Agency for Community Living, which is the, the um, thing, the organization inside Federal Health and Human Services, um, which covers the, um, associate, the Agency for Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and the Agency for Aging, 
um, has adopted this. They've funded a national center on supported decision making. They funded research. Um, so it's really something that is being embraced nationally and locally at the state level and here, fortunately, thanks to our DDPC in New York as well. I'm pretty confident it will go forward. I mean, even based on my limited knowledge, it um, is in sync with people's thoughts today about the lives of individuals with developmental disabilities, so I can't imagine any other way. Well, it's interesting because when we talk about it, we're talking about um, a formalized process of facilitation, which we can talk about mm -hmm. in a minute, that will end up in a written agreement. But it's clear that supported decision-making as a set of informal practices has been around for years and continues. We didn't know until two years ago how many people were put under 17A guardianship each year. I mean, ironically, the state wouldn't collect the information, but ironically, because of some federal gun control law, now they have to report the names of everybody who's under guardianship or is put under guardianship in a year. Yeah. So now we know, okay? Um, so in 2015, about 1,700 people were placed under guardianship. Most of those were in three counties, Erie County, which is where Buffalo is, mm -hmm. and Nassau and Suffolk. So you ask yourself the question, is that because the people who are most impaired and most need guardianship all live in Nassau, Suffolk, and Erie? Or is it because the school system in those counties is telling the parents you have to get guardianship or somebody at OPW is telling them you have to get guardianship and all of these other counties which have larger populations and I mean certainly the counties in New York city have much larger populations, but many fewer people being put under guardianship. Um, people are managing with informal support networks. The beauty and I think ultimately the necessity for the more formalized process that we're doing and that is in fact the basis of the laws in the two states that I mentioned is that with a supported decision-making agreement, third parties healthcare providers, banks, landlords, um, will be required to honor those agreements. So for people who are managing in the community now, and I'm, and I'm guessing that's the vast majority of young and not so young people with intellectual disabilities who are making their own decisions with supports. But it may be that when they go to the doctor, the doctor says to the mom, look, unless you get a guardianship, I can't authorize this. Or the bank says, I won't open an account for you. I'll only open it for your mom and so forth. So in order to give people really the opportunity to make and have their decisions recognized, you need that agreement and then you need legislation. And part of what our project is about is sort of creating the evidence base to persuade legislators that this really works and that they should pass legislation like that in Texas. Wow. It, it's a huge undertaking. I mean, we can see that. Well, it is, but, you know, when I started doing this work in 2012, the idea that there would be legislation in this country by now would have just been completely unthinkable. The idea that HHS, the national, you know, agency that's responsible for all of this and all of this funding would have um, embraced this and would be funding it on a national level would have been unthinkable. So it's happened very, very fast. And I think it's happened because the time is right um, and because all of the factors of the push for so many years for self-determination and autonomy right. and inclusion just point this way. Well, HHS is Health the and Health Human and Services. Human Services. Okay, thank you. If you were speaking to the parent of a young adult 
with a developmental disability, what information would you share to help them make these decisions? Because I think when it comes to the work that we do here at INCLUDE, we're usually in contact with the parent um, predominantly. We have a youth service program where we work directly with youth. But the truth is, if the parent isn't impressed with the idea and buying into the idea, it would be hard to get this done at a younger age. What information would you give that parent to help her? Well, I think, I think um, two kinds of information. One is what guardianship is and what it does and what its sort of right. negative consequences so what are. What they don't want. For the mm -hmm. person, him or herself, um, the way in which you know, the parent has sort of done everything to try to mm -hmm. give this person the most autonomy and, uh, and, and um, self-determination possible and how it's just the very opposite of that. Um, I, I'd also you know, talk about the ways in which um, you want your child to be able to be included in the community. You want your child to be able to make decisions, um, both for the long term when you're not going to be around, and also just for their own sort of self-worth and self-dignity. And I guess for parents with very young children, I'd say work, and I, I, I think this is something that the school system should be doing, but unfortunately, you know, a lot of special ed is about a deficit model. Um, and, and it's about teaching compliance rather than really teaching self-determination. Right. Um, making choices and then making decisions is something that can be taught. If you have neurotypical children, you kind of think it happens um, invisibly, automatically, even though there are probably lots of battles along the way. <laughs> I certainly remember that with my children. Um, but kids with intellectual and developmental disabilities may need to be taught in a more structured way. And that can be done. There are models for doing that. So I'd like to see a system, an education system, and a, a training system for parents um, that would really help kids learn to make choices and then to make decisions and to take responsibility for decisions you know, over the whole course of their education. So by the time they're 18, there isn't even an issue about it anymore. That's good old-fashioned good parenting, correct? Yeah, um, but I'm, I'm not sure that parents have been encouraged to teach their kids about how to make decisions. Um, I think the temptation to be protective is very strong and understandable. And without models out there of kids making decisions and being okay, um, right. it, it's kind of hard to break through. So it's a cultural shift. Um, it's, a sh it's, it's a shift we need to make in special ed. And then I think our pilot project is really important because the more successes we can show, the more right. people who have gone through the project and are out there functioning, the more parents who think, oh, I was scared when I started this, but it's really turned out pretty well. And, you know, for us, most importantly, the decision makers who feel like they have control of their lives. Well, the cultural shift would be very, very important. Um, just recently, a young woman that I know had decided that she would give her teenage son with a developmental disability permission to travel by air alone for the first time. And that conversation happened to come up when they were at the neurologist's office. And without being asked, the doctor said, well, I won't sign off on that. And it just shows you what a parent could be up against Oh, without question. I mean, many authorities. Look, we live in a, we live in a, um, a society, a very litigious society, a society where everybody is worrying about legal liability and getting sued and so forth. So the easy way is to just say, I want a guardian. I'll only deal with you if you have a guardian. Right. Don't take a chance. Um, 
But people have to take chances. You don't exactly. learn and grow without taking chances. Absolutely. And, you know, it doesn't always work out fabulously, but that's true for our neurotypical kids as well. True, true. So let's just break it down for the listeners now. Uh, tell us how the supported decision-making works step-by-step, step, including the objectives. Fine. So um, basically it is about facilitating... A person with an intellectual disability, who we call the decision maker from the get-go, so it's really clear who's at the center of this process, um, to identify those areas in which he or she think, thinks or needs uh, support in making decisions, to identify trusted people in their lives who they want as supporters, to figure out what kind of support they want, and then to figure out how they want to get it. Um, what I've just said is what we call the big four. The mm. which areas, the who will support, the what are the forms of support, and the how will the support be given. Mm -hmm. So our facilitation model uh, is a three-stage model which begins with a trained facilitator working with the decision maker, identifying how he or she makes decisions, what areas uh, are happening in his or her life now and in the foreseeable future, um, thinking through who the trusted people in his or her lives are, um, and then really kind of figuring out what kinds of support he or she might want. And, and there are many kinds. Sometimes it's just gathering information to make a decision. Sometimes it's helping to weigh the pros and cons. Sometimes it's talking about what are the foreseeable consequences of this decision or of not making a decision. Um, particularly for people who don't communicate in traditional ways, the support may involve communicative support with regard to third parties. And then there could be support in implementing the decision um, as well. And so they work through that on a worksheet. And then phase two is working with the supporters who the uh, DM, DM decision maker has chosen, <laughs> um, which is really kind of a, a two-part operation. First, it's educating them about supported decision making where the supporters are parents, and they often are, they may have been at information sessions and they may already know something, um, but often they'll be siblings or neighbors or some, someone else who hasn't, so there's an educational component. And then, there's, and then there's what we call repositioning, which is helping people move from the protective and parental role of making decisions for to seeing the person as a decision maker and understanding how to give the support that he or she wants. And then we move to phase three, in which everybody comes together and they negotiate an agreement, a written agreement, contract, that sets out, again, the big four. Which areas the person wants support in, from whom, what kind of support, and how. So, for example, um, it might be that you want mom to help you with health care decisions, and you, you really... Um, value the way she brings information, but she's also quite bossy, and maybe you think once she gives you her opinion, then you kind of have to do that. So you might say, I just want you to bring me information. You might want dad to do financial transactions, and you might want dad to help you weigh alternatives to think about um, what the consequences might be to bring you information and so forth. You might want, let's just say you want some help in making decisions about personal and intimate relations. Probably you don't want mom or dad for that. So maybe a sibling, maybe a neighbor, maybe a teacher. 
And again, the question would be who that should be and what kinds. And then the how is really logistics. It's if you have two supporters for one area, do you want to meet with them together and talk about it? What if one of them is your sister and she's away at college? Do you want to Skype? <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, literally logistical issues about how these decisions are going to be made. And uh, we find, and this is, I think, the experience uh, of other pilot projects around the world, that for big decisions, DMs may often want everyone in their support network to come together. And then that's a logistical issue as well, obviously. Um, we have one DM that we're working with right now who has designated nine supporters. So you can imagine <laughs> with very different schedules um, what that's going to look like. So fortunately, we have really good technology now right. that allows people in different places at different times and even in different difference. time zones um, to weigh in. And that can make it possible for a larger group. I mean, people that couldn't come together on a regular Absolutely. basis could be available that Absolutely. way. So that sounds terrific. Absolutely, yeah. So... So at the end of the day, what you have is a written agreement that sort of sets all of this out. Um, the supporters all sign on and say, I understand and accept that this is my role. And the one non-changeable uh, provision of every supported decision-making agreement is that the decision-maker can change it or revoke it at any time. It's his or her agreement. So you mentioned a facilitator. Um, I read somewhere there's also a mentor. Tell us a little about yes. that. Yes, so the facilitator, as you can see, is the person who works through these three phases. Um, and we train them. Currently, we have a two-day training. Um, and we're also developing a training manual. And then we have lots and lots of materials for them to use. Um, and then there are mentors who are quite experienced in this, have done a number of facilitations, and who are in constant contact with the facilitators. So they'll meet with the facilitators before the facilitators start. They'll check in after every facilitation session. Um, the facilitator, after every session, fills out a form that gets filed on our, on our secret website, not available to everybody, very, very protected, so people's confidentiality is protected. Um, so there's ongoing support for the facilitators as well. And the mentor will also convene groups of facilitators to talk about best practices and what's working and what's not working and so forth. So there's a lot of feedback in the system. Hmm, that's interesting. So what can an individual or a family do if they're interested in this? Well, they can contact us. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> they can contact us. And the very exciting thing is that only... Well, I think technically it'll be at the end of this week, but it, it may really be up. Our website is finally up. Wonderful. We have a wonderful website, which actually provides for connecting with us and telling us who you are and what you need. Um, and it is really easy to remember. It's just sdmny.org, supporteddecisionmakingnewyork.org, sdmny.org. Um, we also are available to do information sessions. We'll do it for parents groups. We'll do it for schools. We'll do it for self-advocates groups. Um, you know, we've done it at conferences of NYSACRA, and we're going to a NYSARC conference. We've done it at agencies like JobPath and um, HeartShare and, uh, uh, and, and various other agencies. So there are many ways to get to us, but the website now is really the best. The website. So if somebody wanted to ask you to come out and speak about this, for example, they would do it through the website? Yeah, absolutely, they can do that. Unfortunately, I don't have our phone number. This is really bad, but it's on the website. Oh, <laughs> okay. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm we'll gonna search to, through my purse we'll while have you're to. while you're while we're talking what and I'm, perhaps I can find okay. it. Aha. Perfect. Here we go. Two one two three nine six seven seven five four. Um, now, I really like the way you call the individual the decision maker. DM sounds less enchanting, but still, the decision maker. What are the core rights of the decision maker across this process? It's, it's his or her process. Um, he or she, if he or she is over 18, is the person who signs the consent mm-hmm. uh, to come into the project. And in those situations, we'd like the parents uh, to sign an assent but the consent is the legally binding document. If a person is under 18 or a person is under guardianship, currently under guardianship, um, then that person signs an assent and the parent or a guardian signs the consent. But we always see it as the process of the decision maker, him or herself. And he he or she can leave the process at any time. There's no cost or consequence or opprobrium ah. uh, for leaving it, mm-hmm. um, but hopefully he or she will continue to an agreement. And as I said, not only does he or she have the right to change that agreement, but can add or subtract supporters, and that's the flexibility we were talking about earlier. So, you know, your sister is your supporter, but she goes away to college, and then she gets married, right. and she moves to Finland or something, but in the meanwhile, your friend at work you know, is there so you can change supporters and so forth. But that's always the decision maker's choice. What happens if an individual comes to you that is already under guardianship? So um, what I didn't say earlier was that we really have two pilot, two separate pilot projects. One is called the Diversion Project, and that's, as it sounds like, um, diverting people who are at risk of guardianship, mm-hmm. trying to keep them out of that system. And that tends to be, we, we tended to focus at least at this early stage on transition age youth, because that's the sort of moment at which most people end up right. petitioning for, most parents end up petitioning for guardianship. Um, but it certainly includes people who are older and, uh, and are interested in doing this as well. Um, but the Restoration project is people who are already under guardianship and who want to have their rights restored um, and where we believe that by showing a court that there is a supported decision-making system in place, Mm -hmm. well thought out, well tested, I should say we're being evaluated by an independent nationally recognized evaluator, um, that that will persuade the court that Guardianship is no longer necessary, no longer necessary, or the least restrictive alternative for a person. So, in the beginning, in this first sort of year and a half, we've been um, limiting the diversion, uh, the restoration project, to people who are under guardianship, where the guardians themselves are uh, willing to participate in the project. Um, and and here again, you know, remember all of these parents who just were told, get a guardianship, got a guardianship. Right. I mean, remember that, right. or if you don't know this, in many, many places, it's really only a question of filing papers. You never show up in court. The court never sees the person. The court never sees the parents. It's all done on papers. Um, so they did this thing, and they had no idea that they were taking their child's rights away um, and making him a legal non-person. So there are lots of people out there who are actually functioning quite well, but they have no legal personhood. And so for those people, um, the guardians often are quite uh, willing and, and interested. In fact, in some cases, maybe the sort of uh, 
folks who put this in motion because they realize what they did and that wasn't what they intended at all and they see that their child is actually perfectly capable with supports of making the decisions that are necessary to live in the world in an inclusive way. Well, I can imagine that many parents think this is one of the more important decisions that they're going to make. So I think it's wonderful that they have an opportunity to think about it or even after the fact go back and support change. I think that's amazing. That really is. Um, do you have any final words for people that might be on the fence? Um, well, it can't hurt to try. <laughs> we actually, um, we, we did um, some information sessions at the very beginning of our work um, at Cook Academy, which is, uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure you know, a, mm -hmm. a, a very well-known and a very wonderful school for people with intellectual disabilities. Um, and, and at the first information session, um, we met two sets of parents who had actually started guardianship proceedings and who said, you know, I didn't realize what this really meant. And, you know, maybe we should think about this and who put it on hold. You know, they'd gotten lawyers and they just said, let's put this on hold. I've actually talked to the surrogate, to my successor, mm. who said, yes, we have several of these now. How amazing. Um, so we have people who are going through the facilitation, and hopefully at the end they'll say, wow, this is great, this is better. Do you think parents like this might be interested in being facilitators themselves in the future? Oh, absolutely. So when I said there are pilot programs around the world that we've learned from, um, one that I know quite well and have visited now several times is in Bulgaria, and they found, uh, they've been operating since 2012, so they've had several hundred people go through the program, that many of the parents whose children became decision makers um, thought it was such a great idea that they, the parents themselves, have become facilitators, obviously not for their own kids. And we right. anticipate that's going to happen. We're really looking forward to that. That is a beautiful outcome. Do you have any story you'd like to share with us before we go? Well, I can tell you, we, we have not because we're still in the very early stages, we have not yet gotten to a signed agreement with any of our decision makers. Um, we're very close with several. Mm -hmm. But just to give you an idea of the range, we have one young man who is literally a transition age person, just mm -hmm. 18, um, and he's getting close to his decision. He has designated nine supporters, um, all of whom are family members, parents, Lucky. siblings, mm -hmm. and cousins, although the facilitator is actually encouraging him to think about one of his teachers as well. So that's kind of how many there could be. We have another young woman who came out of a skills program, so she's in her mid-twenties. Um, she's kind of comfortable being dependent and her parents have been quite concerned about that. So they're really the ones who have pushed her into this program. And I think we're seeing as she goes along that she's beginning to see the value of being able to make her own choices and how that will allow her to lead a better and more included life. And then we have a, a slightly older gentleman in his late 30s, I think, where there's been over time some real conflict. He's not under guardianship, but his parents sporadically have threatened him, he moved out, they started a proceeding, they stopped it, and so there's been a lot of tension. And going through this process has really helped both of them to understand because he's acknowledging that he does need support and they're acknowledging that with support he can make his own decisions. So it's actually Fantastic. a really wonderful kind of family therapy operation. But again, <laughs> with the decision maker at the center of the process and maintaining his 
um, self-determination and his autonomy and his dignity. It's a very, very exciting project. All I can say is here's to the decision makers. And thank you very much, Chris, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Jean.